And that's a, uh, it's kind of a powerful title because we so desire to have victory in our lives. I don't know of a single person who wants to go through life defeated, feeling defeated, always feeling like they're on the losing end of the stick. <clears throat> and so we come to this Psalm of David, and this one is one of the first of the nine Psalms of what is known as an acrostic poem, where each line begins with a letter from, a he from the Hebrew alphabet in order. This one follows about half of the Hebrew alphabet. And the Septuagint put Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 together because Psalm 10 is also an acrostic and they both talk about justice. But while there's a lot of similarities, there's enough differences that we probably want to treat it on its own. Plus, that's a total of 40 verses to put together, so I decided to split it up. Now, this psalm has in its original Hebrew title in the CSB, For the Choir Director, According to Muth Laban, A Psalm of David. Now, scholars are unsure of what Muth Laban means, whether it's a tune or an instrument, but the New King James Version renders the title Death of the Son. And if you look at the ancient Chaldee Version, it says concerning the death of the champion who went out between the camps. And everybody relates that to Goliath. If you remember that Goliath was the champion of the Philistines who went out between the camps to fight the wars. And so I think that this psalm is David reminiscing on his victory over Goliath that he had many years previously. And he's many years now removed from that triumph, but he's looking to that triumph for the strength to find the victory that he needs for the future. And so I see Psalm 9 is a psalm of conquest. It's a psalm of victory. And in this psalm, we find not only hope and help, but assured victory. It's a psalm of faith. I don't have my clicker. I broke it. It's a psalm of faith. And we know that faith doesn't know how things are going to go, but it trusts in the one who will work things out. And so look to God and his faithfulness in your past for confidence for your future. Those who focus on and trust in the Lord, they will enter into what I call a refuge of victory. Psalm 9, verse 1, it says, I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name most high. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. You've rebuked the nations. You've destroyed the wicked. You've erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to eternal ruin, and you have uprooted the cities, and the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for judgment. And he judges in the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. 
Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death so that I may declare all your praises. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. The nations have fallen into the pit that they made and their foot is caught in the net that they have concealed. The Lord has made himself known. He's executed justice, snaring the wicked by the work of their hands. Hegeion Selah. That's not how you pronounce it. I'm just guessing. They didn't have an actual pronunciation for it. The wicked will return to Sheol and all the nations that forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. Rise up, Lord. Do not let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only humans. Selah. If you want to have refuge in victory, there's, there's many times we can take refuge and we can hold up for so long that we actually are in defeat because we're not doing what we're supposed to. But the Lord calls us and tells us that we can have refuge in victory. And we do that when we come to the Lord. He's our refuge. But we have to come to him in certain ways. We come to the Lord in praise. When you come to the Lord in praise... You're coming to him for refuge, but you are victorious in your praise. And so David writes in the first two verses, he says, I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, most high. You want to find refuge of victory, you have to do it through praise. You can't do it through complaining. You can't do it through griping. You can't do it by saying, that's not fair. Praise tells us that we have to have a positive, upbeat connotation where we're worshiping and celebrating the things that cannot be forced. We're not forced to worship the Lord. Like We can't just like come with this method where we come before the Lord and we say, now you owe me because I praised you. God won't force us to praise him. And that's why David uses a repeated phrase in these two verses. He says, I will. This is us laying ourselves down saying, despite everything that's going on, despite what I'm going through, despite what I'm feeling right now, despite all of that, I will thank the Lord. That's the first one. He says, I will thank the Lord. This requires recognizing all the things that the Lord does in order for us to thank him. It's impossible to thank someone if we're not paying attention to what they're doing. So David says he'll thank the Lord, but he says, I won't just thank the Lord. He says, I will thank the Lord with my whole heart. David knows that God is worthy of praise and he's worthy of the praise that is contained in his entire being, his whole heart. The entire being of a person should be directed in affection and affirmation to God. Or as Spurgeon said, remember that half heart is no heart. If you come to God half-hearted, you're not coming to God. You're holding back from God. Only those of a thankful heart will find refuge of victory for the Lord. 
The next I will statement. David says, I will declare all your wondrous works. So David puts here his finger on what is most often neglected yet important way to praise the Lord. Telling of all of his great works. It's easy to tell the great works that he's done for us. But sometimes we need to be declaring all of his great works to remember just the power, the sovereignty that God has. Retelling the great and wonderful things that the Lord has done. That word, the, the two words that you see there, wondrous works, it's one word in the Hebrew. And it's frequent in the Psalms used of, yes, redemptive miracles, but also of the more everyday normal experience as well as the hidden glories of Scripture. In Psalms 106.7, the psalmist says, Our ancestors in Egypt did not grasp the significance of your wondrous works or remember your many acts of faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Talking about the Exodus, when they came to the first obstacle, they couldn't even remember back to just when they left Egypt, where they plundered Egypt, where Egypt gave them all of their goods and everything willingly and sent them on their way. He said, go, go, be free. They come to their first obstacle and they're like, man, and that's what it is for us. We will not have that refuge of victory when we come to the obstacles if we don't remember the faithful acts that God has done before. Psalm seventy-one, seventeen: God, you've taught me from my youth and I still proclaim your wondrous works. Remembering that all through our life, God is working. Because the scripture promises that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We have those things that happen in our life. And then the other thing is, Look to the scripture and, and, and glorify God through all the things that he does through scripture as well. Pray, open my eyes that I may contemplate the wondrous things from your instruction. God's not just active in our life, in the things that he does and whatnot. He's given us the manual for us to live a life that pleases him. That's what this level of praise takes. We have to open our eyes. We have to ask that our eyes are open, that we might actually see all that he has done and continues to do. Because every work that God does is wondrous. And then he says, I will rejoice and boast about you. <clears throat> I don't know about everybody else, but I know when I became when I gave my life to Christ, when, when God first saved me, when I became saved, I couldn't wait to tell anybody. I was telling everybody. And that's one way to praise God is you boast about him. You express gladness and joy within him. But something happens along the way where we share it with enough people and enough people kind of rain on our parade that we stop sharing it. We stop rejoicing in all that the Lord has done for us. Maybe we stop boasting in it. If that's you... I would encourage you to return, remember, and rejoice and boast once again in the Lord and all the things that he's done for you 
in all the ways that he's brought you from who you used to be and put you on the path of who he wants you to be. If we boast, may we boast about the Lord. A lot of times we want to boast about the things that we've done for the Lord. But those who want a refuge of victory, boast in the Lord and what he's done. Rejoice in the Lord and what he's done. Philippians 4.4, Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. There is enough about God that we can rejoice in. There's enough about God that we can boast in all the time. And, and where this comes from, about boasting in the Lord, comes from Jeremiah 9.24. Jeremiah 9.24, the prophet says, <clears throat> the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So important that Paul in the New Testament says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 131. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, whatever may come from our hands, whatever may come from the ministry that we've been called to, whatever may come from the love that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no reason to boast in it. Because humanly speaking, we are the weak, foolish, lowly, and despised things of the earth. And God has said that he would use us to confound the wise, to confound the proud, to overcome the wisdom of the world. And so all glory goes to God and God alone. And so David finishes his last I will statement. I will sing about your name, Most High. That name, Most High, is El Elyon, a particular name of God that stresses out certain characteristics and qualities, certain truths about who God is. God Most High talks about his power as the all-powerful one. It refers to his sovereignty as the Almighty. And it confers his supremacy because he's the most high. He's exalted. He's lifted up. There is none above God. And so we sing praises about his name, that he is most high. There is nothing that God says, I'm going to make this happen. There's nothing that can usurp what he declares because there's no higher authority. <clears throat> Those of us who want to have that refuge of victory, we have to first come through that wholehearted praise. We also have to recognize who delivers. Many times we get caught up and we're in trouble. And instead of going, Lord, I need your help, we go, how do I fix this? What do I do? Where have I gone wrong? What do I need to change? How can I make this better? Well, this is what David said. He said, when my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you, God, for you've upheld my just cause. You are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. He says, you've rebuked the nations. You've destroyed the wicked. You've erased their name forever and ever. 
And the enemy has come to eternal ruin, and you've uprooted the cities, and the very memory of them has perished. David is resolved to praise the Lord. We, we knew that from the first point. But there's many ways that he's going to do to accomplish this and to continue in this. David says, when my enemies retreat and stumble and perish before you, he says, the work of the triumph over the enemy, it's all God's doing. Never once did David say, God, did you see the way they ran from me? God, did you see how I handled this thing? No, he says, Lord, I thank you that they run from you. I thank you that you've overcome them. I thank you that you've destroyed them. A refuge of victory is found when we acknowledge our deliverance comes from the Lord. Sometimes I think that we go through troubles that we say, I don't need to bother God with this. I can handle this one on my own. There's times where we, we're facing something so bad and, and sometimes we also start to think, maybe I deserve this. And so we don't call out to God because we're afraid that he might go, yeah, you do. But the truth is, we have to have that heart like David. Where we understand that our deliverance comes from the Lord. It's not going to come from anything that we can do. Even if it was our fault and we're facing something that comes from the Lord's rebuke, we still have to go to him to confess so that he can deliver us. David knows he didn't do it. And we have to recognize we're not the ones to do it either. The Lord is the one who does it. The Lord is the one who will do it. And David acknowledges the Lord's hand. And we see this by the repeated phrase that he's going to use now, you have. So there's the part that I will, that's praise. There's the part you have, which is doing it all. And so he says, you have upheld my just cause. And this is hard because God didn't automatically side and give deliverance because it was David's cause. He won't just side and give us deliverance because it's our cause. God will not uphold injustice. God will not uphold unrighteousness. He only upholds justice because he's seated on his throne as a righteous judge, as David describes here. This reminds me in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites are preparing to cross over and go into the land, As Joshua is near Jericho, he looks up and he sees a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn. And Joshua approaches him and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And a lot of times we kind of come to that. He's either for us or he's against us. But here's how that soldier replied. He says, neither I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. And whenever you see commander of the Lord's army, usually what that entails is that's a uh, Christophany in which Christ appears before he was brought into the world in flesh. 
And so this is a Christophany, and, and, and Joshua sees that. He hears, I have come as the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua bows his face to the ground in homage and says, what does my Lord want to say to his servant? And this is what we need to get from this. God is not on our side. But if we are on his side, he's a refuge of victory. Do we see the difference? We can think that the place that we're going and the things that we're doing is so right and God must be with us. But if we're not sure and we step aside from where God is at and what God is doing, we're no longer with God and God isn't always going to stay with us just because we move. <clears throat> just because we are the Lord's doesn't mean he's always going to be on our side in every battle. We have to make sure that it's something that he wants. Does that make sense? And so David continues. He gives three more statements. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. And you have erased their name forever and ever. With these declarations, what we remember is that before the Lord and his deliverance, all the enemies, all the troubles, all the trials, all the things that we face, it's all temporary. Sometimes we get so entrenched in what we're going through, we think, man, this will never end. It's just one thing after another. This is going on forever. This is going to take, this is just going to continue on. All these enemies just coming one after the other. But in the Lord's perspective, you know what the Lord sees? The Lord sees enemies that come and enemies that go. Kingdoms that rise, kingdoms that fall. Nations that come, nations that fall. But you know what happens? The Lord sits enthroned forever and ever. All of these are temporary, but the Lord has upheld David's just cause. The enemy comes to eternal ruin before God. The enemy comes to eternal ruin forever stopped. When we remember that it's the Lord who gives us deliverance, that's when we know that we can seek the righteous judge. When we come upon those things, when those things happen to us, we remember God delivers us. And then we go, you know what? I can seek him on his righteousness. David says in verse 7, he says, The Lord sits enthroned forever, and he's established his throne for judgment. <clears throat> he judges the world with righteousness, and he executes judgment on the nations with fairness. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted and a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. And so David recognizes that God seemed to be on his side, but it's only because he was on God's side, the side of righteousness. So the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's on his throne forever. He's the eternal one. And as he sits on that throne, he set it up to judge. And he judges the world with righteousness. We've never known that. There's some people that can make some righteous choices, but there's never been, apart from Christ, anyone who's lived perfectly righteous. <clears throat> And so he sits and he judges the world with righteousness. 
And then he executes judgment with fairness. If you want the judge and the judgment to be on your side, you got to be on the side of righteousness. And then you can seek the righteous judge, knowing that he will judge in righteousness and in fairness. Unrighteous judges are unpredictable, right? Sometimes an unrighteous judge may judge righteously or he may choose to judge unrighteously. You don't know if he's been paid off. You don't know if he's been bribed. You don't know if he's having a bad day. You don't know if he just, hey, here comes that guy I don't like. I'm going to really show him. You don't know if they're going to judge righteously. You don't know if they're going to judge fairly. They bring a travesty to justice and they judge unrighteously. But here's what we know about the Lord God. He always judges in righteousness. And so therefore, we know that we can always seek his righteous throne as a refuge of victory. And we know that this will always be that way because his throne is eternal. It's forever and ever. It's for this reason that the Lord is a refuge for the persecuted. See, to be persecuted... You can't be persecuted if they're only after you because you made them angry because of something you did. Persecution comes when it's because you serve the Lord God. They're coming after you because you've chosen righteousness. That's persecution. So then you're on the side of righteousness and you can go to the Lord God. That word refuge in the Hebrew is mizgab. This word speaks of God being the believer's stronghold, the believer's refuge, and it speaks of defense. We find it in several places throughout the Old Testament, all in lots and lots of scripture. 2 Samuel 22, verse 3 says, My God, my rock, where I seek refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. Psalm 46, 7, it talks about the Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And the prophet Isaiah says, He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the rocky fortresses. His food provided, his water assured. The allusion is to the fact that in the ancient world, safety to either the one fleeing or to the one at rest is synonymous with reaching and remaining a fortified height. A height so high that it is inaccessible by beast or enemy alike. When you think of refuge... That's what it is. You're up on a high place, up out of the reach of enemies, up out of the reach of danger, held up. And this is seen to be a precise picture of the believer's safety and security in God and his victory. And God does more. He doesn't just judge the wicked. He's a refuge for those oppressed. He doesn't just judge the wicked. He doesn't just take care of the wicked. He's a refuge. He provides that rest. He provides that security, that safety. 
And God's protection isn't given because he favors some and opposes others capriciously. It's because God's people know his name and trust in him. It says, those who know your name, Lord, trust in you. You want to have refuge and victory? It comes from faith in God. You have to have faith in God. He's asked us to trust in him, to believe on him, to call to him, to come to him. When you exercise faith in God, what you're saying is, I know that you are truthful, faithful, and that you won't abandon those who seek you. Refuge and victory also declares also requires that we declare his works as we see them happening. There's times that we go to God and you know what? We ask for things and as it happens, we neglect to acknowledge it. I'll always be reminded of this and, and, it, and it's a very silly thing because it has nothing to do with safety or security. But I'll always remember the story about the, the guy looking for a parking lot, a uh, parking space in the parking lot of Walmart. It's raining ferociously, and he's driving around. He's like, Lord, I just, I'm achy. I, I hurt. I, I don't, I just need to run in and run out. Can I just find a parking spot up front? And right as he said that, there's this parking spot that's bam, right there. And he says, never mind, Lord, I found one. David says, sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death so that I may declare all your praises. And I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of the daughter Zion. So David turns in the psalm, closing the praise section here. And what we see is a transition where he says, sing to the Lord. And then he starts asking and talking to the Lord more like a prayer. We need to remember that not only do we find power when we praise God, but we find the power for the things that we go in when we pray to God. <clears throat> we praise and we declare the wondrous works of the Lord. And as we remember the works of the Lord and proclaim them, we remember that he reckons bloodshed. We remember his works. We remember that he doesn't forget the oppressed. Because there's times where we may be going through something tough. And as it goes and it doesn't relent, we begin to tire. We begin to weary. And that thought comes to our mind. God has forgotten me. God doesn't see me. Maybe David was in a period where he's at, where he was tiring out, he was wearying under the attack, feeling like there's no way out, maybe thinking that God has ultimately failed him. But to find our refuge of victory, even in the times where we, everything says just give up, don't let go of God. Hold on to him. Hold fast to him. Understand that without him, there is no hope. And so one way to regain the strength and that strength in trusting him is to look again to the Lord and his works and sing praises. This is what it means in Psalm 8 too. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've established a stronghold 
on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. You see, God has established power in the praises of his people. What a privilege we have. What a joy that we can share, that we can sing praises to the Lord. And the Lord has promised a defense to be provided within those very praises. And so as I said, David moves on from praising the Lord to coming into prayer before the Lord. He praises the Lord for what he's done. And as we remember what the Lord has done, that leads us to go, you know what? He probably wants to do so much more. I can come and I can ask him. I can trust in him. I can call on him. And then David says something peculiar here. He says, be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my afflictions. Lift me up. Rescue me. David says, rescue me from the gates of death. He seemed to be at the gates of death. He calls out to the Lord for deliverance. When we consider in wondrous praise God's previous work, God's eternal throne, his enduring justice, we come to a place where we know we can call out for his grace because that's what we need. Sometimes in this life, we don't need to be taken out of something or whatnot. We just need grace to go through it. David called out for God's grace. And whenever you call out for God's grace, what you're saying is, I don't deserve any of this, but I trust that you're good. I trust that you'd give grace. It's an open-ended declaration saying, I'm dependent upon you, God. I recognize your power. I recognize I'm weak. I recognize I can't do this. And so in our time of trouble, we have to call out for grace. We have to call out for God to lift us up. And it's in that spot, in God's grace, where we find salvation. And then we have to remember the Lord. You want to have a refuge and victory, you have to remember God. It's an active thing because our mind isn't like a steel trap. I don't know about you guys, but I struggle with this. Every day that goes on, I feel like I forget more. A few examples, I live in a two-story house, and when I go upstairs, I forget what I went up there for. Other times, I walk into the kitchen, and I forget what I went there for. You ever called, had the phone ringing and forget who you called? do that all the time. That's why I text now, because I can always go back and see who I'm texting. David writes in verse 15, says, the nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has made himself known and he's executed justice, snaring the wicked by the works of their hands. Hegayon, Selah. And then he says, the wicked will return to Sheol and all the nations that forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. Rise up, Lord. Don't let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only humans. 
Selah. Notice something. David's declaring that at the power of God, nations fall into the pit that they themselves have made. That's something to be said about the sovereignty of God. They, they can do all their planning. They can do all their scheming. They can set it up and they can set that trap and wait for us to fall in it. But usually what happens is they're caught in their own trap. They're caught in their own net. They're the ones that concealed it, but yet it still snares them. What this is saying is no one falls before God because he wants them to. It's from their own choices that they make that he causes them to through their own wickedness, through their own traps. And in this, David declares that God has made himself known. There's no claim of ignorance. We can't say we didn't know. We can't say that won't work. He's executed justice. He snares the wicked by the work of their own hand. God displays not only his justice, but also his sovereignty using all their own means, using all their own wickedness to ensnare the wicked. <clears throat> then we come to an interesting phrase. We haven't encountered it before. We've seen Salah, but we haven't seen that word Higayon. These two words together meditate and pause. And the picture here is remembering the picture of the Lord's overwhelming judgment of his enemies, his overwhelming destruction. And the call is put to pause and meditate on that, knowing that God destroys the wicked, that God is putting all to judgment and destruction. Meditate on that. Literally, consider and tune your instrument, the instrument of our being. Consider these things solemnly and adjust your hearts accordingly. <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, verse 1, says, this is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right, for my salvation is coming soon. My righteousness will be revealed. He says, Here, here's, here's what's going to happen. The wicked go to Sheol. These are all the nations that forget God. If you want to know if you're on the wicked side, have you forgotten God? You can't say we didn't know. That's not an excuse. They didn't forget God because they didn't know God. They... What, what that word entails when it says forget God, this is a choice not to know God. God has revealed himself in, in creation. We see here that he's revealed himself in the way that he judges the wicked, the way that he traps them in their own traps, the way that he delivers. God has made himself known. So to not know God is say, I choose to ignore the works of your hand. And so that forgetfulness brings dire consequences of eternal wrath. However, it says that the needy and the hope of the oppressed, those who reach out to God, those who are crying out for deliverance from God, says they won't always be forgotten. They won't be forgotten. 
They're not gone forever. Even though in our times and our trials, it can feel that way. We have to have that trust in God. Attune our hearts to know that he won't always leave us in that spot. And so David concludes, he says, rise up, Lord. Put terror in them. And God has done this. It says that he has written eternity on our hearts. You need to stop and tune your heart to understand. The psalm closes with the prayer that the Lord would arise, put mortal man into fear, in a terrifying judgment. Such a destruction makes wicked realize that they are but human. Sometimes we establish that somehow we're going to get over on God. We need to remember that the Lord has declared that those who oppress his will not get away with it. You see, in Hebrews 9.27, it's written, it's appointed for people to die once, and after this, the judgment. And we hear from people all the time, oh, when I meet God, I'm going to have words with him. I can't wait until I can give him a piece of my mind. Other people say, well, when I get up there, God's just going to have to realize that I did the best I could and that it's just going to be all right. Well, here's what Paul says. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, he will reap. If you sow to the flesh, you sow to weakness, you will reap wickedness, not weakness. If you sow to the flesh and you sow to wickedness, you will reap destruction. He said if you sow to the spirit, that means if you cast all your hope you put everything that you live for towards God. They get eternal life. <clears throat> when we do as David declared, where we stand at the gates of death, we come to God's throne. What are we going to plead before him? Are we going to try and declare our own innocence? Are we going to say... You know, if we're honest, we're going to be like, you know what? I'm not totally innocent, but I'm mostly good. And if there's a line there, I'm better than that guy. As if that gets you anywhere. The only thing that we have hope in is that we have to plead for the grace of God. And that grace of God comes through Jesus Christ. You see, this psalm points to the death of the Son the one who goes between the camps, between the Lord and between all of humanity, separated in this gulf by sin. And it says that Jesus is the one who will lift us up from the gates of death. And that means that he who believes in me and my name, even though he dies, he will live. Christ promising eternal life. And then we can rejoice in his salvation within the gates of daughter Zion as the Revelation proclaims that there is a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be there. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, Lord. <clears throat> and Father, I don't know where all of us are at. You do, though. I pray that you would speak to the hearts of those listening, to those who feel maybe trapped, stuck in their plight, feeling defeated, maybe feeling a little oppressed. 
And Father, I pray that you would speak to the hearts and that you would help us to attune our hearts so that we can find refuge in victory by praising your name, Father God, declaring your great works that you've done in our life before, you're doing in our life now. Help us to declare those great works, Father God, and help us to remember you. Sometimes in our troubles, Father, the first person we forget is you because we're so focused on ourselves. Help us to remember you because in remembering you, what we remember is that you have written this, that even while we were yet still enemies, Christ died for us. You sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the exchange for our sins. Because you are a righteous judge. And you're on your throne forever and ever, Father God. We can trust in you for all of eternity. Help us to attune our hearts to cry out to you for your grace that's found in Jesus Christ. Amen.